Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Speaking on that topic, did you see the um, news update from Core Scientific today? No, I did not. Fill me in. What's they going on? Have, they have, uh, over the month of June, they liquidated 80 to 85% of their Bitcoin holdings at an average price of like $23,000 per coin. That's wild. Yeah, it lo- seems like a lot of the miners, uh, They, I mean, I didn't wasn't really looking to, into a lot of the public miners myself. But it seems a lot of them got either not, I wouldn't say bad loan terms, but basically trying to take out debt and had higher liquidation prices than they were hoping or expecting, basically. Well, and, and in, 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 in reality, as far as like game theory and like responsible business and, and, and budgeting goes, <laughs> the virtue signal of saying that you're just going to hodl all your Bitcoin as a business is just not not very smart. Like I get that it, like a lot of people like rallied behind it, but... It's a virtue signal that, like, like we're seeing right now, is just going to cause them to fall on their own sword and eat their own words. Like, it's just not a smart move. I, I, I bet going forward, we're not going to see a whole lot of businesses that are going to claim that they're going to just hold every Bitcoin that they that they acquire. Yeah, I guess the one thing that didn't make sense to me, and I guess correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'm pretty noobish in the mining world. I, I don't know it that well. But when you're saying that, like to your point, you're either collateralizing your Bitcoin in order to get more fiat money to buy whatever bills or whatever, but also mining, if correct me if I'm wrong, everyone's competing to like zero, basically. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you could have zero cost energy, everyone's competing to try and get that or use that. And then so at some point in time, you're like, like you're asymptotically approaching zero for the cost of energy. And if everyone's competing to do that, you have to sell Bitcoin in order to cover costs, if, if that makes sense. Well, and it's, and it's not it's not just cost of energy either because they're all competing to try and get the next best machines so they can out-compete each other faster to gain more Bitcoin in that like in that marginal time difference between like when those new machines become like saturate the market and become the new standard. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of cost involved. Yeah, exactly. Not even once you're zero, once your energy goes to zero or if and when it goes to zero, it's then you're competing for the next ASICs or the next generation. Like at some point you need to sell your Bitcoin or, or you know, or you get caught in a loan off sides basically. So uh, in, yeah. in the long enough time frame, at least. Yep. And that's why we're going to see, um, this is why I was saying last week, like with all this carnage in the Bitcoin miners, like you're going to see like the, the big energy players start really getting aggressively moving into the space. It's, it's getting pretty exciting. Definitely. Morning. Yeah. Whoever was uh, 
This is Lisa. Whoever was hopping on talking about the energy providers, for sure, we're already seeing that. I mean, I've, I've been speaking with energy executives for the last six months, um, sat in the CEO's office of one of the largest power providers in the country, and they, I, I was not telling them anything new, really. I mean, they, they're not experts on Bitcoin, but they certainly have a team that is looking into the Bitcoin mining, and they've been approached by every Bitcoin miner that's out there um, looking for power. So I think it's it's absolutely just this market cycle. And for core, who knows? I'm not quite sure that's different than maybe some of us who think, you know, gosh, maybe I'll just put some cash on the sidelines. I'll sell a little bit of Bitcoin, put some cash on the sidelines in case this does go much further uh, much further down, but they're, they're just, they're in a hard spot, right? The compression of the spread, Bitcoin price comes down, energy prices are going up. Looks like they'll continue to go up. Interesting times to be alive and be in Bitcoin. Yeah. And the hash rate still remains, um, you know, almost double it was last year for these, for these miners. And I, I think it's interesting because I, I read that they, you know, have a lot of loans and then use their equipment as collateral, and it's another kind of factor is these ASICs have been basically cut in half uh, the price of those. Um, so if they had to raise cash and sell their equipment, they're getting about 50 cents on the dollar from what they paid for these equipment. So that just adds to like their pain. Um, uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is Cafe Bitcoin. This is uh, the number one place to talk Bitcoin. My name is Sam Callahan. I'm, I'm filling in, hosting uh, for Alex. Alex is uh, with some family hanging out, taking a much-deserved break, and I'm filling, uh, filling in his shoes. So welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. we got some great Bitcoiners on stage. Um, we're just going to talk some news, so just wanted to kind of welcome everybody here. I didn't mean to break up the convo. Um, we have a uh, minor uh, VP of finance on stage with us. I don't know if, uh, I, oh, I, can't, I don't know if I pronounce your name right, Gazala. Uh, if you had anything to add to this conversation, I'd love to hear your opinion. Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, you're really close. It's Gazala. Um, I was just going to add on the on the topic of core and selling their Bitcoin. Um, it's a big number that they sold. I think it was like a little over something over 7000, um, which is more than we've seen most of the public miners selling. But they also produce over a thousand a month. So it's not going to take them long if they did, if the market changes or they decide to um, not sell. I mean, I think it, I think they had to sell quite a bit to make payments on minor shipments. So like for them, it'll take no time to get back that stack um, if they do decide to, to hodl it, but it's not to be like miners have been selling a little bit um, it's not really a new thing. I mean, some miners sell everything, it, not really the public ones, but, but a lot of others have to start off selling everything to generate enough cash to be like expanding and buying more machines. But it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out over the next, you know, I don't know, couple months or, or longer. Sir Jim, go for it. Oh, Hey, uh, Hey, everybody. Um, I don't know if this is um, appropriate. I don't know what the scope of this mining topic is meant to be, but um, I happen to know a bunch of people who mine privately. And uh, many of those people 
will, are willing to mine at a loss. They're certainly willing to mine and keep the sats and do a fiat job to pay their bills. And I just wonder, I mean, I'm glad that that ecosystem is out there. I think it's growing. I think as the prices of miners are coming down right now, more people who can afford it and are, as I said, even willing to take a small loss to get KYC-free sats are entering the market. It probably will never be as big as the commercial market. And certainly when energy companies start to realize that they're they're right at the start of the whole thing and they become the miners of the world. I still think there's going to be a large section of people out there that are mining in their garage for the, the little bit that, that they can get. And I, I think that's a good thing. It keeps the network decentralized. It, it keeps, you know, any one actor from potentially getting too much power in this game. But it is quite fascinating to see it evolve. And with the downturn in the price, a lot of crap is going on that I think nobody expected. Uh, I'm sure Gazo's got her hands full over there at Riot Blockchain. But uh, I think they're doing good work. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there that love Bitcoin and want it to succeed. And they're trying really hard. And, and uh, you know, uh, those individual miners count for something. Just wanted to make that, uh, you know, make that statement, let people chew on those that information for, for whatever it's worth. One thing that uh, that I'm going to be watching throughout the summer going into the fall is going to be uh, what happens with hash rate and all that. Um, if if the, the different ISOs do come under enough pressure, like they were warning, um, the last, like, uh, what, four to eight weeks of potential constraints on the grids, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with, with hash rate then. And see how like how much the American like energy grid impacts global Bitcoin hash rate, and then how that plays into with like the particularly like the the energy producers that are that are mining like directly on site, like Exxon and ConocoPhillips and, and those guys. Um, I don't know. I, I'm nerd now. Like this is just going to be really exciting to watch how the entire like ecosystem like ha- hashes everything. Pun intended. Yeah, and to, to surf for Jim's point, um, it is good to have these miners uh, individually mining for the decentralization. I don't know if you guys saw or can confirm this article I read last week that marathons, like 75% of marathons active fleet was knocked offline by a hailstorm in Montana. But I just thought that was kind of crazy, um, kind of shows like there's uh, benefits to kind of spreading out your operations as well as these individual miners to decentralize the network further instead of having these massive, um, you know, operations, which are good for hash rate. But I just thought that was a crazy story where 75% was knocked off by one hailstorm. Yeah, we uh, here at um, GAM, I'm not going to say any numbers or anything, but we had a similar situation with the blizzards that came across North Dakota in April. It was... <laughs> pretty it was pretty painful but yeah it's just gives credence to the the greater decentralized that basically everything could be the the greater the company the greater the network and all that yeah and if you know if you look at like someone who's just mining out of their house you can buy a you can buy a miner for cheap right now and then and then you can look at it if you're mining at a loss you can almost look at it as dca you have your job and uh that's just you're just paying your electric bill regardless your power bill and uh, your DCA with your miners and you're getting KYC free Bitcoin. And um, real, real quick, Sam, to, to follow up with what Sean said, um, 
if those like if those uh the, the plebs that are mining like that like the sean and, and and jim mentioned um if they can if it if it gets to the point of where grids do like become constrained like i mentioned this summer and some of the bigger miners have to have to like curtail a bit there there's the increased like likelihood of them getting a greater payout while there's like other bigger players that kind of are forced to like sit on the sidelines 100 percent um yeah and i think uh, some of this conversation is around you know recent news that duke energy the second largest electric power provider in the united states um is starting to study bitcoin mining and um as a demand response approach and lisa you you mentioned that you're having conversations with um kind of energy providers like that and I was wondering if you could give a little bit more context about what kind of conversations you're having exactly. Are they just getting up to speed here? Um, what's the kind of the questions like? Yeah, um, really, the conversation t- took place because I I wanted to get in and meet with their executives, you know, selfishly as a business development person and and bring them onto the platform. Um, but what I discovered you know, is that, like I said, they, they're really not up to speed on Bitcoin. They're not up to speed on the human rights element or maybe some of the other elements that we love. But they've already got teams that are studying what is this thing of Bitcoin mining. I apologize if it's loud. I'm walking through a parking garage. Um, you know, what is this thing that's Bitcoin mining? Because they've been approached, you know, dozens of times by people who are trying to get into, you know, are trying to look for, are looking for power. So I mean, I'm sure that this specific company that I'm speaking about has probably approached Gazala. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they're, they're trying to figure it out, right? They, the, the trick is for some of them is that they can't really hold Bitcoin. They can't have it as an asset on their balance sheet, right? Some of these regulated utilities that money goes back to their stakeholders or their shareholders, it just would probably be an unacceptable use of use of funds. But they definitely are interested in in figuring out what this is and you know on a long term basis, can how do they participate? Very interesting. Um, Tomer, you got your hand up, man. Morning. Yeah. Good morning, Sam. How's it going? Um, I just, I don't know, I don't mean to derail the conversation. It's definitely what I wanted to say is about mining, but I know there's lots of people always in the audience who've heard of mining and they don't quite understand how it works because there's, there's quite a bit of complexity to it. And, um, and there's all these variables that you guys are talking about and how they might impact the network. So I thought I might just offer a couple of minutes on how to think about this if people are interested. Um, and if not, I'm happy to see, <laughs> see the floor. But um, it, the conversation is getting a little on the complicated side. And uh, unless you cut me off, I'll start. No, tell me, go for it, man. Yeah. I, what's, there's all these inputs um, and outputs that go into mining. The, the really curious thing is, unlike almost any other, well, unlike any other thing that you're aware of, no matter how many inputs you put in, you get the same output. I'd imagine if you were baking bread and no matter how much flour you put in, you still got six loaves of bread an hour out, out of the thing. 
doesn't seem to make sense, but Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment makes it so that the more energy you put in, the harder it gets to make a Bitcoin. And it's it's set so that a fixed number of Bitcoin get produced on every block and that blocks come on average every 10 minutes. So so this is kind of the first thing. And, and what you it, it takes a lot of time to think about this and wrap your head around it. But what you can start to think of is, well, if energy starts to get more expensive, does it become more expensive to mine a Bitcoin because energy is an input? And you say, well, a bunch of people stop putting in energy or they put in less energy. And so it ends up kind of equalizing it being the same cost. Fewer people mine if the price of Bitcoin comes down. So the cost of producing a Bitcoin itself comes down because there's less people putting energy into it. And so Bitcoin has this regulatory mechanism that other commodities wouldn't have. And like it, it doesn't get cheaper to extract oil from the ground if the price of oil comes down. And, um, and the amount of oil that is produced changes based on the price of oil. The amount of Bitcoin that gets produced does not change based on the price of Bitcoin. And so this makes it a one-of-a-kind uh, commodity. And, you, and it doesn't follow the normal rules of supply and demand because the supply is always fixed and the supply cannot be increased. And that causes all kinds of um, interesting things. The, the reassurance that once you study this, you realize as a Bitcoiner, the, the miners are the ones who are taking all the risk of prices going down and um, and the value of the equipment going down and the cost of energy going down. They also enjoy the benefits of when things move favorably for them. But what ends up happening is no matter what happens to any individual miner or to the mining profits as a whole, the network continues to remain decentralized and producing blocks at one every 10 minutes and rewarding only the fixed reward amount that was supposed to be issued according to the schedule that was released when Bitcoin was released. Uh, all of that continues to function completely normally with only the most minor of hiccups, like sometimes blocks might take 11 minutes on average. Like when China banned Bitcoin mining last May and they were, were accounting for like 60% of hash rate was there, we had a brief one week period where blocks averaged 13 minutes and then everything was really back to normal. So if you're hearing, oh no, a whole facility in Montana or Texas was down for hours, this doesn't really impact Bitcoin on the whole. Uh, it certainly impacts the people operating that facility. But this is the whole point of decentralization. As long as electricity is operating anywhere where some miners are, which is just about everywhere in the world at any given point in time, save for some local disturbances, Bitcoin continues to function and the mining continues to function. And if it gets, if the price of Bitcoin goes down and the cost of energy goes up, the difficulty adjustment adjusts at miners make their economic calculations and Bitcoin keeps operating. So I thought I would just... Uh, make that point for people as to how clever the design is to keep bitcoin alive to keep bitcoin operational despite all sorts of possible disruptions you know and right now <laughs> i don't know that satoshi necessarily ever imagined that this much energy like 1.15 percent of all the energy that humanity produces is what's estimated right now to be going into Bitcoin originally it was just like his laptop or his desktop, whatever, whatever he used, and then Hal's desktop or laptop as well. Um, and this whole thing has maintained perfect consistency despite having as little energy as one or two computers and as much energy as like a thousandth of the entire output of all the power plants in the world. And it can go up to 
if we discover ways to produce a million times as much energy as we as we now know how, it'll still go steady at one block every 10 minutes. Yeah, and definitely the, uh, the difficulty adjustment is a big part of that too, right? It kind of maintains the competitiveness in a way that protects the network. And as the difficulty adjustment kind of goes down, which I expect, I think last last difficulty adjustment uh, dropped about over 2%. But as that continues, it should make these uh, cheaper machines more profitable and incentivize people to turn those back on, which I think is just genius uh, invention of Satoshi. I was wondering, you know, in, in these periods of um, kind of more challenging environments for these miners, uh, the ones with like the strongest balance sheets and the most efficient operations and the lowest cost of electricity, you know, typically survive and the less inefficient operations kind of close shop. And I'm wondering if some of the people in the mining industry up on stage here can speak to if they think we're going to see a lot of consolidation here um, where uh, we have maybe some acquisitions. Um, it seems like that would be a logical outcome here, but I'm not sure if I thinking about that correctly so i was wondering if one of you guys could chime in maybe um i'll speak just based on like this is purely my my own thoughts i haven't really spoken about this with coworkers. i think a few months ago everybody was thinking there would be a lot of acquisitions at least within like the, the public minor space um they thought this would be the year of acquisitions and consolidations um i think now it's more, I don't think anyone is talking about acquisitions at the moment, just because this is still pretty fresh, like the price drop or correction. Um, I don't know that there are many miners that, that are even with a strong balance sheet that are um, thinking about spending their, their cash in that way. But I do think that everyone is watching very closely to see for opportunities to um, I don't know. For me, I'm, I'm looking for like how how I can get more miners for cheaper than even they're retailing for right now. Um, so I think it's, you know, maybe it'll happen just after somebody, you know, fails. But I don't think people are actively um, engaging and making offers because it is it's still like, you know, how you spend your it's great that if you if you even manage to have cash on your balance sheet right now, um, and you don't have debt, like those those two already, it's it's not that common in the public space. A lot of miners have debt, um, so they really need to be conserving their cash. But yeah, that's that's just I guess my two cents on that. Ironically, they're harming their balance sheet when they sell Bitcoin if they force the price of Bitcoin down. Because that's the asset that they—that's one of the assets, and and, the, and also if if the price of Bitcoin comes down, it forces down the price of their equipment, which is collateral, because the equipment is valued on the basis of how much Bitcoin it can generate. So, so the, they're kind of caught in a in a bit of a catch twenty two if they're liquidating Bitcoin and liquidating, um, well, just even if they're liquidating Bitcoin, because their need for cash um, to pay down debt will push down the price of Bitcoin. And, and interestingly, I mean, I, I think this feels like then it causes this overshooting, um, which which is something that we often see Bitcoin, which is what explains some of Bitcoin's high beta. You end up with people forced to sell when it's low 
and that makes it lower than it needs to be. And then when it all when it all clears out, they get to buy as it's going up and higher and higher, and they hold as it's going higher and higher, which causes it to go higher and higher because there's less being sold. Um, so there's a there's there is kind of this amplification or positive feedback loop on on the price. Was, uh, you know, again, not financial advice, but I think this is why it's always so beneficial to stack during bear markets because the whipsaw back um, ends up having the exact opposite effects where people are encouraged to, people are always encouraged to hold if they can. And uh, just, bear markets are kind of like this time when they can't. Um, but as soon as it returns to a time when they can, everybody holds and that means that there's a lot less supply available to be bought. I didn't, I did. Yeah. Uh, um, agree. Like continuing off what Gazel was saying, like, I don't really, I didn't really understand the whole belief that while Bitcoin's price and the hype was really elevated, I don't like the merger and acquisition stuff just doesn't, didn't make sense. Um, because, like, especially with, like, the big energy producers, whether it's Duke or Exxon or, you know, pick one, um, they're going to, they, like, those groups aren't unintelligent. They're not going to, like, fall prey to FOMO. Like, they, they're going to want to test the product out and understand it for themselves first before they even attempt to consider trying to acquire, like, a, a Bitcoin miner. So, I just, yeah, I, I think, I think I agree with Gazel. I think that this is going to be, like, the year of learning for for the energy producers before they even consider like like because i've been saying that like they're you can expect them to go in heavy into the like quote unquote into the mining space but i don't mean in the sense of like trying to buy up any existing companies i'm i'm betting that the we're going to see we're going to be seeing these guys like trying to just like scrape up some of the equipment for on the cheap while the like some of these other guys are struggling and then uh maybe depending on how long this bear market lasts, like if it's only like a year or two, um, I would bet that the next bear market is when the, the energy producers start to maybe gobble up some of the others, but I could be wrong. I'm also not extreme. I'm not very experienced in this space like Gazala or Lisa are. So my, my, my points are pretty moot. No, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, no, I appreciate the insights across the board. Um, it's always interesting just to see how this market develops uh, in good times and in bad times. Um, I think bear markets are for, for building resilience um, in the mining industry, and and that's kind of what I think we're going to see. Uh, but but it can always be kind of a painful uh, experience for some miners uh, when they realize that uh, they're not as efficient as they thought. Um, I, I'd like to kind of switch the conversation, uh, pivot it a little bit. Um, you know, one of the stories over the last, uh, let's say, week has been um, Peter Schiff. Uh, so I guess Puerto Rico uh, closed his bank and a lot of uh, Bitcoiners were kind of uh, in his replies saying, this is why we Bitcoin, um, you know, rather than allow a sale of his bank to a highly qualified buyer. Um they basically froze his accounts and now he's wondering if his customers are going to lose money and never uh, dance on anyone's grave or anything like that. Even though Peter Schiff has been very vocal critic of Bitcoin, you know, I don't really wish harm for any of his customers or anything, but I think it really 
kind of highlighted uh, some of the things that we talk about with Bitcoin in terms of um, you know censorship resistance and not it's not your coins and it's audibility and all these like kind of benefits. And Peter Schiff seems to be learning that lesson uh, the hard way. So I don't know if anybody had comments about those developments at all. Yeah, I, I don't know what else there is to say other than that this guy has been kissing all over uh, Bitcoin for so long, saying that it's nothing and that it's not um, that it's not real, <laughs> and he finds himself in the maximal irony position of being censored by a government that he says is acting irrationally and unjustly uh, to to parade around and act as though it's um, enforcing some form of justice when in fact when in fact it isn't and uh, and he can do nothing about this uh, in the current in the current system of course had his assets been non-censorable, permissionless money, the story might have turned out different. Yeah, it, it, it highlights the not your keys, not your coins. And it's it's like not your government, not your bank. You can be censored at every single level. And I think he thought, oh, if I have my own bank, then I won't be censored. But you don't realize that there's a level above banks, which is the government. I still don't expect him to come around. Um, not not this wave, at least. I mean, like he's, he, his rationalization is likely to be, well, even if I was using Bitcoin, I would be, um, I would be censored too somehow. And I mean, th there's some reality to that, that if he was a compliant organization, he would in fact be required to comply, but to the extent that now potentially all the funds are frozen or that a transaction is frozen uh, within the United States, within Puerto Rico, it, it certainly highlights the case that there ought to be uh, a way to not have to comply with capricious and arbitrary orders. And uh, I, I, like this is certainly in the gray area between where regulations ought to exist and where they ought not to exist. But, but it's certainly a black and white issue of whatever Bitcoin I have in my custody, nobody can stop me from spending it and nobody can stop me from receiving it. And whatever um, cash he has in a, in a bank is clearly freezable and not free for him to spend as, or to transact with as he chooses. Now, did anyone see exactly what was the reasoning behind why the Puerto Rican government shut his bank down? Was it one of the Celsius things where he was over leveraged on a loan? He was insolvent. Was that the reason why? No, he said something. So this is my guess. Um, I have a snarky tweet in the nest. So he wrote, the only explanation is the IRS and J5 blocked the sales so they could use the closure of my bank as a successful example of their crackdown on money laundering and tax evasion, even though their own investigation proved the bank did nothing to facilitate any financial crimes. So just being the cynic and former lawyer that I am, um, when you talk about 
the bank did nothing. When Peter talks about the bank did nothing to facilitate any financial crimes, that's actually not what the law is on this sort of activity. So you're supposed to, under, under the FinCEN rules, you're supposed to file a suspicious activity report anytime a bank or those associated with their business, financial institution includes banks, they have to file with FinCEN whenever there's a su su suspected case of money laundering or fraud. That's probably, that might be what they fail, failed to do. Obviously, the regulators found something they didn't like um, in the bank. So we'll see, we'll see what, as more facts come out, but it, it's very hard to know exactly what happened because, you know, Peter's giving sort of a one-sided view um, and the regulators are probably not commenting. So he's trying to paint himself in a way that makes the government look like they're acting very capriciously and randomly. And that's possible, but probably unlikely in this case. Governments don't go around just randomly shutting down banks, right, or randomly um, putting banks into insolvency for no reason. It's true. It's to me, you know, like uh, Peter's a prime example of this, but he, um, you know, looks at Bitcoin as just a speculative asset. And I think a lot of us have always tried to highlight um you know, technological benefits of Bitcoin in terms of its censorship resistance. It's just as another example. Like it reminds me of the Canadian trucker protests last year. Um, or I don't, was that the beginning of this year? I don't know. But, um, you know, that kind of woke up a lot of people to the, the idea that governments can just unilaterally freeze bank accounts, even if you disagree with them. Um, you know, they don't really need they can do it very easily, I guess I could say. And that whole experience really woke people up in advanced economies that this could happen to them. And now Peter Schiff, ironically, is just another example of, of this censorship that we're seeing, this increased censorship in the traditional financial system. Um, and it's been going on a, lo a long time um, in emerging markets, but now we're starting to see it in more advanced economies as well. And it just kind of highlights Bitcoin's strengths. And I think that's what this uh, whole debacle is just another example of that. So we can do a little, uh, you know, I just want to do a little announcement here. Uh, this is Cafe Bitcoin, uh, this is the best place for morning news. It's the preferred hangout for Bitcoiners every morning. I got my coffee here. Got some great Bitcoiners on stage. Um, we do we do this in a podcast we release every day uh, on Spotify and Apple. So you can listen to recordings of these conversations. If you aren't here for the live conversation, uh, check it out. Um, this is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin Magazine. At Swan, we are an international Bitcoin brokerage and education company. Um, you know, if you want to send somebody a gift in Bitcoin, you can use Swan. If you want a Bitcoin benefit plan for your employees, we offer all kinds of services uh, for Bitcoin um, to kind of make it more accessible for people. Um, if you want to learn about Bitcoin, uh, our CEO, Corey Clifton, does the daily Bitcoiner newsletter where we share one piece of the best content in Bitcoin's history every single day to your inbox. So go to corey.substack.com uh, to get daily Bitcoin signal right to your inbox from a industry leader. 
uh, Corey Clipston. Um, you know, in terms of the last couple weeks, we've we've seen basically a large de- deleveraging from uh, these crypto lenders and DeFi protocols, um, really spawning from the Luna Terra uh, crash, which and then it caused all kinds of contagion from there. Um, and and right now, I think everyone's asking. Is that leverage cleared? Is there more to come? And that's kind of the big question. I don't know if anybody on stage um, has any kind of opinion about how much leverage has been wiped out and if we are kind of meeting the the bottom there. I I know there was like two other crypto lenders that were smaller that I had not even heard of, like called Vald, that also kind of froze withdrawals. And we're, we're still kind of seeing this kind of creep up into these smaller lenders. But I don't know if anybody has any opinion about just kind of where we are in that deleveraging cycle. Um, and and if, if it's kind of, we're kind of fitting a bottom, I'm kind of hesitant to say bottom, but just in terms of the, the blowups, if we've seen it kind of all that we're going to see there. Hey, what's going on, Sam? Hey, everyone. Um, I just shared up in the nest. Um, so, unfortunately, uh, I think deleveraging is going to keep happening as long as the bear market lasts, as you have um, Bitcoin companies uh, either um, at their own fault or no fault of their own realize that they don't have the don't have the liquidity, don't have the funds, didn't do the, didn't perform good math uh, to survive the bear market. Um, so I shared up in the nest that the big breaking news this morning was Core Scientific liquidated somewhere close to over eighty percent of all the Bitcoin on their balance sheet, which is um, like seven point two thousand Bitcoin, it's over seventy two hundred Bitcoin. Uh, just to pay the bills, just to keep operations going, just to pay off their debt, to make sure they can survive to the next halving. And it's not just them. We, you know, last month, uh, Bit Farms was the big name that liquidated over fifty percent of its "quote unquote" Bitcoin hodl. Um, and no, these aren't. This isn't three AC. It's not Celsius, and it's not BlockFi, et cetera, et cetera. But the the premise is the same. These are companies that uh, over levered up on cheap debt. And unfortunately, realized way too late that uh, the era of cheap debt is over for the time being. And um, now they have to sell what they have to make sure that they can survive. Yeah, I think, I think the lesson is that there's like everyone thought Bitcoin was going to 100,000. You had these plan B models saying it's going to 300,000. I think it's just like the lesson is you don't know what Bitcoin's price is going to. And so if you get levered, that's the scary part is you don't, it could go down, it could drop 50%, it could go up 50% in a moment's notice. So it's not, I mean, for the average person, it doesn't make any sense to get to get debt, to go into debt buying Bitcoin or posting your Bitcoin as collateral because you don't know at what point you can get uh, liquidated from that position so there's no point really in, in doing that when you can just stack and you can just stack bitcoin and as bitcoin's price goes lower you can buy more as it goes higher 
well, you just keep DCA in. So I think that's, yeah. Will there be more people and more companies that get liquidated? I'm sure there will be. I think it's just kind of hard to know because you you can't really look in at everyone's balance sheet, how much debt they have. You don't know uh, what their you know what their liquidation point is. So for everyone, it's different. For every company, it's different. So I think that's the thing is you just don't know when people could get liquidated and and Bitcoin's price can go lower. I think this news about Core Scientific is a great example of what I was talking about earlier, which is the the acceleration and and um, feedback loop, right? Core Scientific is a company that is principally invested in mining and operating data centers and buying ASICs, and they've been holding on to a lot of Bitcoin. And as the price went down of Bitcoin, they were required, they found themselves in the position where they were selling Bitcoin into the market causing the price to go down further, causing them to sell more Bitcoin. You know, and it looks here by the article that you shared that uh, 23000 was the average exit price for them for this. for this, And and like to, to this degree, it's <laughs> I'm not calling the bottom, but I'm saying like we're starting to come near the bottom as all of these forced sellers are once they are past their forced selling point and the debt positions are cleared, the exact opposite effect starts to reemerge as we bought as we bottom out. That suddenly, people aren't in debt; they aren't required to liquidate Bitcoin to pay off dollar-denominated debts. I'm not sure where we are in that process, but when that period ends, then they can begin reaccumulating Bitcoin, and they are not selling Bitcoin. And so, <laughs> the the order books have less asks and more bids, um, or they at least have less asks. And when they have less asks, the price goes up. Yeah, I saw some, I saw some stat, uh, I think from like crypto slate, that said that 21% of um, Bitcoin buys were using leverage, which, which seems really high to me. But, you know, to um, Sean's point, it just seems like using leverage isn't, you have to be a sophisticated investor to use it properly. And there was a leverage that was very, very high on these exchanges offered to retail investors. And I don't know if they knew the risk that they were taking. And for this um, you know, very volatile asset this early in its adoption cycle, you know, in my opinion, you should just try to avoid leverage at all costs and just focus on it, buying spot, putting in cold storage, and um, given how early we are in Bitcoin's adoption cycle, that seems like the prudent move. And I think that's what a lot of people on the stage have been uh, educating people about and recommending um, because they've seen these cycles before and they've seen how leverage can uh, destroy people's balance sheet. You could be so right about Bitcoin, but because you use leverage, you get wiped out of your position. So, you know, I think it's just careful. Like if you're thinking about leverage, thinking about taking loans, you got to really do the math and understand your own personal situation before making that decision and don't succumb to greed just to try to get more Bitcoin. I think that's just an important lesson. Um, we just saw Stephen just popped up on stage. Um, good morning, Stephen. I don't know if you have something to say. Morning, Sam. Yeah, great to be here. I've, I only caught a, a tiny, tiny piece of this, but, um, you know, I think we're basically talking about leverage. I would really just echo what you're saying in that you just, you just take on 
you take on so much additional risk in management. You know, there's just so much else you have to consider so many tail risks, so many like ranges of volatility or like carrying costs for the leverage. Um, you know, I think most people, I mean, generally I feel like for the average person, the motivation behind taking on leverage is they feel like they're not going to make enough money for whatever their goals are. Um, you know, it's like, I have this much, I can buy this much Bitcoin and I really want to own more. So I'm going to take on leverage. And I, I, I think for the vast majority of people, you know, they'd probably be better served, you know, finding a way to, you know, earn, earn some additional income and buy some more Bitcoin than uh, levering up just because it is still such a volatile, you know, volatile world and a volatile asset class. And that's just something we need to navigate and plan for. Yeah, I, I think the whole th point is, it's not even like you have to be sophisticated to it's like even the sophisticated or quote unquote sophisticated investors are getting wrecked using leverage. Like all like Do Kwan was supposed to be this this genius and using some AI algorithms and Mashinsky was supposed to be, you know, really smart. All these guys that that were quote unquote sophisticated are the guys selling Bitcoin at in the bear market. While the smarter the smarter guys are the guys that are buying Bitcoin right now, they're DCAing into Bitcoin in the bear market. They're buying while other people are selling it. Like what Tomer is saying, this is when you want to be buying it, not forced selling. You want to be buying right now because then when it whenever it does go up and it can go lower in the short term, uh, you know you don't know what it's going to do in the short term. And I think and you know no disrespect to any of the of the you know on-chain analysis guys or guys that have the newsletters but you know even guys like Willie Wu he he's like I he stopped doing his newsletter and so because he couldn't figure it out and so I think that's it's just a sign that you know it's so volatile and in my opinion I think Bitcoin's going to get more volatile be before it gets less volatile uh, because and more just because I think the dollars the way what's going to happen with the printing of the dollar is going to make Bitcoin more volatile uh, with how the Fed will raise rates and lower rates and do quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. And I think that will affect Bitcoin's price for a while because a lot of institutional investors look at Bitcoin like a speculation instead of savings like most you know stackers and hodlers look at Bitcoin. I think you raised a really, really great point there. And um, I, I think this is just, I think, so important to touch on even a little bit more because this myth that like if you're a super sophisticated investor, if, you know, people on, you know, that have worked on Wall Street for 20 years, people that have been traders for decades, that these people know how to use leverage and can use leverage effectively and don't get blow up from it. It's just totally false. And, and you know, we got to hammer that. Right. we got to be very clear that it's not a sophisticated versus non-sophisticated like dichotomy. Um, highly, high, I mean, look at the history of all the hedge funds in the world. Look at the look at long uh, long long-term capital management. Look at the traditional finance sector. Most of the blowups we experience across all financial avenues is essentially due to leverage. So you know, it, 
if somebody, if you're reading, you know, just for people that are newer to the space, if you're reading some Twitter account or some newsletter that talks about how they trade successfully with leverage or they do this thing, they know how to do it right. It's, 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 it's bullshit. It's bullshit. When I think, and I think it's part of the human psyche. So you get into Bitcoin and you start to go down the rabbit hole and you go, okay, this thing, everything is going to, all the monetary premiums in the world are going to get absorbed into Bitcoin. And then your human psyche takes over or your fiat mindset takes over and you try to play the fiat games. How, what can I do? I got to leverage up as much as I can to get as much Bitcoin as I can. But the reality is if you, if you work or you get another side hustle and you continue to make money, you do it in an honest way. You don't scam people out of money. Uh, then you, will be able to save Bitcoin over the next 10 years. I mean, think about it. Think of it. You have a car payment, you have your house payment, your rent, whatever. You're paying for that all the time. So if you looked at Bitcoin as this massive uh, long-term play for yourself, then you wouldn't have that greed inside of you. And I think that's the biggest thing is it's just a greedy thing that gets people to over leverage. They, they know, okay, I understand Bitcoin's what it's going to do. But then they get greedy and then they lose Bitcoin and then they get Bitcoin derangement syndrome. And then they're talking about how toxic maximalists are. And so it's just a, it's just backwards. Right. Like if you just if you just say, look, my, I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to have a big ego about this and I'm going to stack from what I save and Bitcoin will be my savings account. Then you're going to have enough Bitcoin, in my opinion, because Bitcoin, because I believe what Bitcoin's price is going to do in the long term, it people are going to look at you like a genius for stacking and hodling and not like a genius for over leveraging and ending up with less Bitcoin than what you started out with. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Uh, sophisticated was probably the wrong word choice there. Um, because like you guys said, uh, you know, leverage just seems like a shortcut. Like you should be focused on increasing your income. You're trying to bet with money that you don't have. And that's where you can run into trouble. And it reminds me of long-term capital management in 1998. There's a book, uh, when genius failed and all these, you know, Harvard PhD geniuses ended up using way too much leverage and brought the global economy to its knees in 1998. And then you have a similar situation with Three Arrows Capital. A lot of these people um, thought that Three Arrows guys were, were really smart, and they, they maybe they are smart, but they use leverage in a very, very dumb way, and they use it on the GBTC trade. And now look what that's gotten to them. So it's, it's a dangerous game when you use leverage. Uh, Chris, what's up, man? Yeah, what's up, Sam? How's it going? Uh, no, I think I want to add to what Sean was saying. I think it was excellent. Uh, I think you know you don't want to be sell, uh, forced selling in the bear market. You just want to stay humble, stack sats. You don't want to use leverage. You don't want to do these lending platforms. I mean, to put this into perspective for people, at the current price, we're sitting at like 19400 for Bitcoin's price. If you want to be in the 1% of the world, meaning the like the the 1%, you know how we used to talk about the wealthy elites or the 1%, based on Bitcoin's supply, we know there's only ever going to be 21 million. Uh, I've seen this calculation before. If you have 0.28 of a Bitcoin, so you know about a little bit more than a quarter of a Bitcoin, right now that costs you $5,449. That's to be in the 1% of the world. 
And that's assuming, you know, it becomes a global reserve currency. Everyone's operating on Bitcoin. But to become the 1% of like the 1% of the world, like that's the all the Bitcoin they'll ever be. There's only ever 21 million. If you were to evenly divide Bitcoin amongst everyone in the world right now um, for like taking it, dividing it by the uh, 7.7 billion people, that basically says you can buy one person's worth of Bitcoin uh, for, I think, like 54 bucks or it's even less than I think based on the calculation. But yeah, it's it's crazy how uh, when you're dividing 21 million by the 7.7 billion people on the planet. And like, if that's like a person's worth of Bitcoin that they could ever accumulate later on, it gets much, much harder to do that. But uh, yeah, I think it's just stay humble, stack stats, and don't get over your skis and force to liquidate or do weird lending platforms, you know, be self-custody yourself with best practices. And, you know, that's kind of, that's the game. That's literally the game. Um, So I just kind of added to what Sean was saying and just put some perspective for it, you know, to become that wealthy, it's about $5,000 right now. It's like, it's hard to fathom. It's going to not happen tomorrow or the next day or a week from now or a month from now. But over the course of time, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 year time horizon, that's kind of what you're thinking about. And I think, I think a lot, I think it can be summed up is don't become a forced seller. Don't, don't become a forced seller. Don't ever put yourself in a position if you can avoid it. I understand, you know, real life can, you know, intercede sometimes and we have no way to control that but beyond that don't put yourself in a position that makes you a forced seller that's the number one rule for bitcoin we're seeing that play out with all these companies right now with uh, balance sheet management with miners right that's the story right now the story is the companies that have become forced sellers are going to become insolvent or are insolvent and the companies that have positioned themselves to navigate this downturn that don't have all of that debt, that don't have leverage, that didn't do these bad practices, they're going to survive and, and, and become larger and become you know more functional. And it's the same thing for, for people, for companies. It's you got you just have to position yourself, and that means you know, managing income, managing debt, managing There was a, um, it's it's kind of interesting with um, this idea of leverage right now and three arrows capital. How, um, for anyone who doesn't know, there was GBTC is a closed fund that um, people in retirement accounts can get access to it. It's a security, so it's a Bitcoin proxy for them to get exposure to Bitcoin. And uh, for a long time, it was trading at a premium, and there was this carry trade where uh, large institutional investors would uh, buy Bit- buy the GBTC. Um, and then hold it and then basically collect that premium. But then when that premium disappeared, um, it went to a large discount. And then 3AC apparently doubled down with leverage, uh, thinking that it would get back to NAV, and it never did. And that kind of allowed them to blow up. But I'm, I'm wondering how much blame should be put on the SEC uh, for for not um, approving a spot ETF? Like, could all of this been avoided if they just would have not allowed GPTC to get as large as it did and uh, become kind of more of a systemic risk. Like for me, you know, at least part of the blame should be placed on these regulators that allowed it to get this large. 
and um, didn't approve better products like a spot to ETF. And um, I'm wondering if anybody has any opinions on that, because I think part of all of this can fall on the feet of these regulators who've been asleep at the wheel and not protecting retail investors. Yeah. I, I think. Uh, I think oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think that's right in certain angles, right? So let's separate, first of all, that the GBTC ARB wasn't why Celsius or Luna blew up. So those, and then Stake Teeth. So those, those blow ups would have happened anyways. Um, but it was central to Three Arrows Capital. Um, and I, I do think, I mean, you know, not that I'm advocating to keep Three Arrows in business, but um, I do think that, yes, if, if they had gotten out in front of the GBTC thing, it probably would have prevented that particular fund from the chain of events that resulted from that. But as far as responsibility, I mean, I, th- I think I think the SEC is terribly complicit in the GBTC situation. Uh, it is it is such an anomaly. I mean, they have allowed a six or seven billion dollar impairment on a fund that they approved. Right. Like they had to approve GBTC for it to trade. And. They've allowed it to trade at this massive impairment while they, you know, approved a futures ETF, have approved private companies, publicly, sorry, not private, publicly traded companies to buy and hold Bitcoin. Um, It's, while nobody knows the exact motivations, uh, it it seems just so likely to me that it is a bid for power um, and that essentially... Gensler and the SEC is trying to gain regulatory authority over what I suspect is the crypto exchanges. There's just like a gray area there and is withholding the spot ETF uh, essentially to have a greater regulatory umbrella and expand the SEC's power to cover some of these kind of more gray areas that may be appropriate for it to regulate, but that it currently doesn't have the authority to. Um, and I, I think it's a, I think it was, I think it's been a total failure. The GBTC situation, I really do. They should have approved a spot ETF a while ago. Matt, did you have anything to say about that? Yeah. The second order effects of this are just so odd. I mean, you could imagine an alternate reality where, MicroStrategy never got the attention or the uh, market cap of 2020 and 2021 if it was a spot ETF. Because think about it, like, who, why bother buying MicroStrategy if uh, you could just if you just get the spot ETF and it trades really close to Bitcoin price, not too much high, not too much lower, and you don't have to worry about any counterparty risks with, uh, gee, how's, how's MicroStrategy's cash flow going ahead into the future, et cetera, like, there's just so many. The you could you could go down the rabbit hole of alternate realities if if a spot ETF had just been um, allowed a year ago, two years ago. And I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair comment in terms of like you're going to see a lot of purchasing go to that. Um, you know, there's still going to be spot Bitcoin purchased to you know to for the spot ETF, but it. I think the main risk there is it creates a centralizing force in the market. It creates if too much money flows into those vehicles, it basically creates honeypots and consolidates Bitcoin supply in these entities. And I, I think that is I think that is the real and legitimate uh, criticism of these ETFs. So I I totally agree with you there. 
For sure. Yeah. Um, just to kind of think about it another way, it's, it seems to me like all this wealth and retirement funds, it's just trapped. So they don't really have any other good options. And yeah, the ETF um, would centralize Bitcoin. And, and I understand all those arguments, um, but they really have no other better options right now. And and the uh, I think uh, 32% of, of people's wealth are locked in retirement accounts, I think I read recently. So it's, it's kind of tough because if they're going to get uh, exposure to Bitcoin, it might as well be in a better product. And so I understand that. And then there's other, you know, Australia approved one, um, Canada approved a spot ETF. So th- these uh, vehicles are already out there. It's just not in the U.S. And so we kind of risk falling behind globally as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, guys, I think about this a lot just because I think from a, uh, you know, I'm so legit was a trader for a very long time. I traded commodities, although I don't want to be a Bitcoin trader. I'm certainly not a day trader. I don't trade Bitcoin, but at 30 percent, I have been considering, you know, is it worth me selling some or a portion of my physical Bitcoin and going into grayscale. So I've given this a lot of thought on that level, but then I always get to this very philosophical place that why have they not approved this? Like why do the news stations and some people, news personalities really bash Bitcoin consistently? Like is the U S government trying to take a position in Bitcoin without it being in the scope of regulatory framework that perhaps would take the price higher. And I mean, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's something else at play, like way under the surface. I think you're getting, I think you're hitting on something. Yeah. I I think there's a little bit of also an old boys club, so to speak, you know, uh, not to get into the collegiate history of the founders of, of Grayscale, but, you know, they didn't come from the traditional trap by BlackRock, Goldman Sachs um, uh, trajectory. Um, there's uh, smarter smarter talking heads than me keep thinking, you know what, the first Bitcoin ETF is probably going to come from Fidelity, no matter how big the market cap of Grayscale is, just because, you know, the squeaky wheel gets greased first and they know where the, they know, you know, they know the, the power players on a first-name basis. Yeah, and, and you also don't know how long like people think, oh, uh, that Grayscale is for sure going to get, it'll, it'll turn into an ETF. Well, the SEC, can, they can just say no forever, right? Just, just the same way that a Bitcoin stacker can hold his stack forever, the SEC, can, they can play that game too. So in my opinion, if you have... If you have Bitcoin, there's no reason to sell it for, for fake Bitcoin, whether that's uh, mining stock, whether that's GBTC. I mean, you, there's a big risk. It, it's a big risk that you, that you're trying out, and it, it might work. It might work, but it might not. So, again, it's like, what's what's the reasoning behind it? Like, do you need to get all the Bitcoin in the world? Like, you're not gonna get all the Bitcoin in the world. So, then you gotta ask yourself. Okay, am I getting greedy or am I or am I earnestly stacking? I think those are the questions that you have to ask yourself and you have to be honest with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with what you just said, and that's really 
I come back to two things. I come back to what I used to tell myself when I was in the trading world, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So I consistently remind myself that, uh, you know, don't, don't be that idiot. Right. That's, that's so right. And yet so wrong. Um, but I, then I get to this very deep philosophical place that I think it cannot be that, you know, a woman who does not have a graduate degree in finance has figured this out before people in the Department of Defense or other places that are very high up in our government. Because to me, this is the the the, the big gigantic thing at play isn't whether or not the SEC approves this. I think that's actually like minuscule in the world of Bitcoin. It's like this gigantic arms race globally. And I can't believe that that we, the U.S. government, is not taking action somehow. So part of me really wants to believe that they're taking action below the surface and they've asked the regulators just to lay low. I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts. I think, uh, I mean, I would agree that that is totally the, the right choice. Like, no matter what outcome you think is going to happen, I mean, there's no real reason that if you're the U.S. government, it wouldn't make sense to acquire some Bitcoin, even if a small amount, right? Like, it's just, you have the money printer, man. Um, but I think, I think the, like, the question you're raising, I think it, it raises an interesting point on, is the government uh, a rational actor? Is it a central rational actor capable of decision making? And, like, this is a traditional, I think, view of government is that, like, there's people in government that decide what to do. But I, I think that's honestly highly questionable. And I, I, I'm not so sure that the government really does have like this coordinated central decision-making ability uh, in place of it is maybe instead just buoyed about by outside interests and forces and motivations and has a, basically a very huge coordination problem. Um, and so in, in other words, I'm saying that it's much, much less competent and capable of decision-making than we think. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that this like rational choice of, you know, I don't know, man, buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin, print the money from thin air, or, like protect the U.S.'s future. Um, you know, it doesn't arrive at that conclusion. Um, in the same way that it like doesn't arrive at the right conclusions for, you know, a number of like geostrategic energy issues. Just, just think about the smartest person that, you know, that isn't orange pilled yet and how hard it is to orange pill that person, the smartest person, you know, and then think, okay, even if there were smart people in the government, that were orange build that knew about Bitcoin, it's tough to get other people to see it. Because but once you see it, you can't you can't not see it anymore, right? But one but then you try to talk to people who you're like, okay, this person's really smart. They should get it. You have to do the work, and not everyone is is has the bandwidth first of all to even do the work. So you have to have an issue or a problem or something that that keeps poking at you that makes you actually study what Bitcoin is and go down the rabbit hole. Because if you don't, 
then you're just not going to do the work. I mean, you had like even look at a guy like Sailor, how smart that guy is. He didn't, he had to have a problem first before he actually went down the rabbit hole. And so, and that's how it is with most people. And so, if most people, if, if life's content, things are going well, uh, if this thing's going, it's, it's going to dematerialize your industry or you, then why would you study it? And so, I think, you know, yeah, there probably are, there definitely are people in the government that understand what Bitcoin is. But in my opinion, I don't think there's, I don't, I just don't think there's that many people who really understand what Bitcoin is yet because they haven't done the work. <laughs> Yeah, well, to your point, think about the smartest people that you know or a person that you know. Like, I, I'm not sure I think people that don't understand Bitcoin are all that smart. I, I really, like, I think there's smart people out there, but the smartest people that I've encountered are the people that understand Bitcoin and that or, are truly taking an interest in it or digging in. Because I, I think in order to be smart, you have to start with just being curious. And people that are closed-minded and not curious... I don't know if they're ever going to get it, but so I, I just go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just interrupted you. Please. No, you go. No, I was, I was finished. Thanks, Matt. Um, so a little behind the curtain. Um, I, I've been, I've been open and honest about this. I, I was first introduced uh, to Bitcoin in um, a defense intelligence agency and, in, and in, uh, DOD. Um, I, uh, when I, I was, um, pretty young and when I first got, when I first got to the National Ground Intelligence Center in Virginia, my coworkers, the first thing they did was show me around. And then the second thing they did is, and we're all Bitcoiners. So I hope you, uh, I hope you'll, uh, uh, listen to us and get interested too. Um, and so like my, that was, that was my first touch with this, like, oh, the, all these super smart analysts, um, that are in charge of protecting, um, U.S. infrastructure, data centers, you name it, they're all Bitcoiners. But um, it was a generational divide. You could literally just slice the workforce in half. If you were older than 45, forget it. If you were younger than 45, you were probably uh, um, a Bitcoin holder, a holder, uh, but really quiet about it. And that was, uh, that was 2014 for some perspective, where you, you really did have to be a little quiet and secretive about it because um, it didn't. It did not have the favorable look of uh, uh, that it does today. Um, it, it's just such a 180 difference in uh, eight nine years. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I um, the smartest minds that I ever first met they, they were all Bitcoiners. I, I think like they're really said. great. I, just a real quick comment. I, I think that's a really great angle because it brings up the same question in another, another way of why hasn't the U.S. government realized that the dollar reserve status is antithetical to U.S. goals, essentially, to at least the economic prosperity of, of the people in the country, right? Like, the military arm, like defense, knows this. They know the U.S. dollar dynamic puts the U.S. at a terrible disadvantage. I mean, you know, how could we ever fight a war with China since they build all of our critical inputs, right? Like, it's it's undefensible. Um, and so, you know, the defense arm knows the disadvantage that the reserve currency status puts us in. 
but the government has not really uh, either A, understood, or B, if they have understood, they haven't taken any action, at least nothing uh, on the surface, to, to counteract that. And so I think that's kind of almost the same question of why aren't they doing something with Bitcoin? It's the same reason. Why haven't they done something with the dollar? Yeah. I got to chime in here if I could Sorry. real quick. Yeah. Go. Um, so was it a little over a year ago, Michael Saylor announced their buys, correct? Their first Bitcoin buys. Anybody? It yeah, yeah. August, yeah, August a little 2020. bit. Okay. August um, 2020. Yeah, so almost coming up on two years now. So I'm really interested in history. And if you know anything about Michael Saylor when he first started doing his podcast rounds, um, I'm going to go a little bit conspiracy therapist here. But uh, he, his original company, MicroStrategy, was seeded by DuPont. And if you know anything about DuPont, they have really close ties to the government. Uh, they were founded in 1802. They've been the providers of all of the United States government uh, explosives and dynamite and gunpowder for every single war pretty much the United States has ever fought. They were involved in the nuclear program. They um, were accused of war profiteering on uh, the First World War. So in the Second World War, when the nuclear program came to be, Every single patent, they basically gave it to the United States government. And now we're moving into digital warfare. And I just find it that it's convenient that a company seeded by DuPont is hoarding all this Bitcoin. And I can't find a single business that says they're a customer of MicroStrategy and they provide business analytics and... You know, this is this is it's very interesting if if you've gone down the rabbit hole of DuPont and found you know inconsistencies in the official story of Michael Saylor. Like I think he's I think he's a pot like what he's doing is positive. Um, I, I think personally, I think, and I mean, I've been in messages with other quote unquote plebs. Things don't add up and. If you could point to anything where the U.S. government is um, secretly acquiring Bitcoin, MicroStrategy would be a great way to do it. Well, listen. Sorry, Matt, you go. Well, you're, you're, uh, Stoney, you're, you're touching on a really interesting point that I feel like we were we all used to talk about in 2021 having those flashbacks to those early spaces days. And I agree with you in that, look, if the U S ever did decide we need to not only accumulate Bitcoin, but, but like tonight, like right now, right now, they, they would never openly buy it in public because you're right. That would signal that the U S has decided that Bitcoin is a sounder, safer asset and a better store of money and wealth and value than their own U S dollar. And would, I mean, that would, <laughs> the ramifications on the global stage would be uh, pretty disastrous uh, overnight. So you're right. If they needed to accumulate it and acquire it, if they had made that conscious decision, I, I agree with you, it would be through a private entity 
one sort or another. I don't know if it's microstrategy per se, but the thesis is sound. Not to mention, sorry, I'm, I'm actually on a job site right now. I'm digging out for another boulder wall, so I got to get back to work. But um, pleb life. Uh, so microstrategy, uh, Michael Saylor's MIT. MIT is, it's, it's government through and through. The, you know, G Gary Gensler taught the, you know, Bitcoin, uh, whatever you would call it. I watched that whole thing like four times. It's, it's milk toast, but it's still, it's there. Uh, Jason Lowry, MIT, Space Force, like all this stuff. Like, I know it sounds conspiratorial, but you need to think in a subversive way that if the government is acquiring Bitcoin, they can't do it in a way that disrupts the current monetary order that they are in control of. Th that doesn't provide for a smooth transition to say a Bitcoin standard. You know, that, like, like you said, it, it would cause a shockwave and around the entire world, you know, that's, that's hyper Bitcoinization and that's, you know, I used to be a accelerationist, you know, like, oh, we need Bitcoin now. And it's like, look around the world right now with, with, with supply chain stuff. It's, it's not going well. Um, the misallocation of capital because of the money printing, it's, it's all something that is what happens when money breaks. You know, it, we, aren't, we aren't living living this through like the first time ever. It's like read uh, about Weimar, Germany, you know, humans are fallible creatures. We, we make the same mistakes over and over again and we need to be reminded of them. And Bitcoin is the first monetary instrument whereas we can't change it and manipulate it long-term to where a small group of individuals can benefit at the expense of everyone else. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I'll just come back to, I think that there has to be something that's way under the surface happening, which is why the government hasn't, um, maybe why the SEC hasn't approved that um, ETF, which I think, again, is like irrelevant really in the grand scope of Bitcoin. But they can't, when they're stockpiling things for nuclear weapons they don't go out and tell the world that they're doing it and i think that that perhaps is what's happening under the surface here today at least i hope for our sake that's what's happening i think uh yeah i think what's interesting there you know obviously i personally have no idea whether or not any of those specifics are true. But I think what's interesting there is that if the U.S. did want to acquire Bitcoin and we're doing that sort of thought experiment, how would they do it? And I think acquiring it via private companies is, is certainly a reasonable answer to that question. And we just saw a micro strategy uh, by the dip. Same with... Uh, you Kelly, which was I thought interesting. Uh, you know, it's a very uncertain time, and and they're sh they're really showing both of them uh, conviction. So I don't know their intentions, but uh, they both bought the dip. So yeah, the United States absolutely bought. Just think of think of 
you have to draw parallels between the nuclear arms race and the Bitcoin arms race. The U.S. absolutely acquired uranium through shell corporations because in the beginning we couldn't refine enough to meet the demand. And, you know, we quickly caught up because capitalism and the U.S. is really good at <laughs> capitalism and and you know, we've, we've gotten away from that with the whole China thing. But, you know, if I was a nation state and I was dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin, MicroStrategy looks exactly like that. All right. Yeah. No, uh, your nuclear analogy is spot on, you know, uh, with the Manhattan Project, et cetera. The U.S. never announced, hey, we're working on an atom bomb. They announced we have it. So... Right. Any announcement? Okay. So I have a little, I have a little, um, maybe pushback on that theory. So isn't MicroStrategy buying on leverage, or are they just are they are they buying spot? They're, they're buying spot. They're, they're buying they're, spot they're, on cheap debt. Yeah. Basically, the way so they're they're buying real spot Bitcoin. They're not buying any derivatives or anything else. Um, and they're doing it with some debt, uh, but this is basically like 90% of the debt is essentially bonds that are non-callable. So it's not like they have a liquidation price or something, as long as they can make the payments and you know, everything's good. Um, and then they have a small like Bitcoin denominated loan, which does have a liquidation point. But you know, you're looking at if, if you totaled up their spot holdings, that liquidation point is like $3,000 per it's extremely low. So they're basically financing a large Bitcoin position. Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it. And Stoney's making the point of like, you know, they have, what is it, 50, uh, I want to make sure I get this right. Is it 50 million cash flow like clockwork year after year? That sounds low, but whatever it is, they have. it seems like they have like just set in stone guaranteed cash flow that doesn't neither rises or falls year after year since literally 20 years ago in the dot-com bubble uh but it's really hard to figure out who their clients are who's their customers who are their who, who are they doing business with i'll chime in one more time so they're a business analytics company supposedly. Um, and if you pay attention to, there was a company, there was a huge hack, quote unquote, of a company called SolarWinds a couple of years ago. And they worked with all these different governments. And MicroStrategy is this, has the same uh, footprint or, you know, they kind of look like the same type of business. And SolarWinds was working with pretty much every single government in the world and they were exploited um, and uh, completely owned. And when that happens, that company probably doesn't exist anymore because they're incompetent or, or it was planned by a intelligence agency to uh, take them out and do what they wanted. You know, information is leverage, especially at the nation state level, at the nation state level. Um, and like, it's, it's the same thing with, uh, crypto Twitter or Twitter in general, 
are the people who are intelligence officers going to announce that they're intelligence officers? Absolutely not. Like the the, the core idea behind uh, behind intelligence is to deny, 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 and scoop up as as much information as you possibly can. Um, but most people, you know, the average normal person doesn't understand intelligence or care to, and they've just been psyoped into thinking they don't exist because that's, that's an effective way to collect intelligence is when people don't know you exist. So, and like with uh, grayscale, um, someone said that they were going to sell Bitcoin to get into grayscale GBTC. Please don't do that. Grayscale is a impaired, um, non-redeemable for Bitcoin uh, derivative. You, You can't get Bitcoin out of grayscale. You're buying a derivative of Bitcoin and you're letting people from Goldman play fiat games with that derivative. And now it's trading at a negative 35% discount to the Bitcoin price. Like, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that the SEC is going to approve an ETF anytime soon. And I hope they don't because the intelligent people are just going to buy and stack actual Bitcoin and take it into self-custody. And that's what anyone who is in this for the long game should be doing, whether it's with KYC free Bitcoin, you know, you're mining Bitcoin, Swan, Strike. Um, that's what you should be doing. Like it's, it's cut and dry. And for some reason, everyone wants to complicate it and give their Bitcoin to three arrows to trade it in the most degenerative degenerate way possible through DeFi, NFTs, and whatever. It's like these people use their affinity and basically trick everyone into thinking they're this highly intelligent operation when we're seeing firsthand that they are just the worst of uh, the fiat system. And like, just don't fall for it. Just stack Bitcoin and hold on to it. That's it. Love you, man. This is why I love spaces. I love Bitcoiners. They're just on the mission. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we're, we're not working with uh, full information. You know, it's important to have these thought experiments about how potential good good developments like MicroStrategy could potentially be harmful for Bitcoin. You know, I would just say, in my opinion, Michael Saylor has been a great advocate for Bitcoin, um, really has stayed true to the message that he originally started having when he came on Twitter. Um, and he's shown conviction by buying it. He's taken a lot of heat from traditional finance people, and he's kind of been a scapegoat uh, for this price correction for a lot of them. Um, so for me, you know, Michael Saylor, uh, hasn't done anything to, for, to me personally like, to show that he's against Bitcoin. He's kind of just consistently had the same message that he thinks Bitcoin's important. Um, so just I, I like to keep that in mind because I, I think long term, um, you know, we are on the same team. We're on this kind of really long term mission uh, to bring Bitcoin to the world. And, and I think we're on the same team personally. Um, I, I like to do some announcements real quick. Uh, so this is. Cafe Bitcoin, uh, the place for morning Bitcoin news and the preferred hangout uh, over some coffee to just talk Bitcoin with Bitcoiners. 
Uh, we do a podcast recording of the spaces, uh, release it to Spotify, Apple, anywhere you listen to podcasts. So check us out. Um, I'd like to announce uh, a new show produced by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, which is the Hard Money Show with uh, Natalie Brunel. A uh, recent guest was actually Michael Saylor. And it's really high quality uh, new show, uh, all the latest developments in Bitcoin. Uh, Natalie Brunel is just a professional and she brings a lot of um, uh, good takes on Bitcoin and explains it clearly in that show. So uh, we, we've been working hard with Bitcoin Magazine to get it out. And uh, I think it's excellent. So go check out that show. Uh, there's also the Pacific Bitcoin Conference that Swan is putting on November 10th, November 11th in L.A., I'm really excited for this conference. Um, it's going to be the biggest Bitcoin-only conference of the year. It's getting a conference out on the West Coast in November. It's going to be great weather. Uh, it's going to be a party. We're going to bring uh, sports, volleyball, b-ball, um, and you basically meet all your favorite Bitcoiners on stage and off. And I think it's just going to be an excellent time. Um, Swan Bitcoin is a global uh, Bitcoin brokerage and education company. Um, we try to meet all the needs of internationals, businesses, as well as high net, what, high net worth individuals. Um, we do SWAN IRAs, business accounts. Um, come check us out. There's a lot of people uh, on Bitcoin Twitter from SWAN. A lot of our DMs are open. Uh, just hit us up if you have any questions about the SWAN platform. And uh, yeah. Um, so we were we were supposed to have a special guest, uh, Anders, but unfortunately had to, um, had an emergency, so he couldn't join us today. But what we were going to talk about is his wonderful paper, uh, Only the Strong Survive, which he co-authored with Alan Farrington. And um, recently, uh, Pete Rizzo uh, wrote a really good article uh, in Forbes uh, titled, let's see, what was it? Bitcoin maximalism is dead. Long live Bitcoin maximalism. And I don't know if you guys ever uh, read it, but I thought it was a really good kind of um, explanation of what Bitcoin maximalism is and why it exists and why it's important. And um, it's been kind of a hot topic of recent weeks. Uh, there's been some drama uh, with a certain VC and, and what separates Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And, um, you know, part of the paper really just said Bitcoin maximalists believe the following, that Bitcoin is a computer science invention and it's the world's first working non-state monetary system. And all other crypto assets compete with Bitcoin on the virtue of their existence. Investing in other cryptocurrencies should be discouraged and ignored socially for the benefit of others as a form of consumer protection. Bitcoin is only limited by human ingenuity. Anything other cryptocurrencies can do otherwise be achieved on Bitcoin. So anything, any innovation could eventually be built on top of Bitcoin because it's only limited by human ingenuity. And I thought it just was a great summary of um, maybe uh, the less toxic uh, viewpoint of what Bitcoin maximalism is and why it exists. And I don't know if you guys read the paper, um, but I'd love to hear some thoughts around that. I can uh, I can pop in here real quick. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's it's uh, it's well written by Pete. Pete's uh, obviously a very great writer, and he's very um, how do I describe it? He's very uh, specific about what he writes, and he's very careful with his words. Um, 
And I know uh, I saw some of the comments on just the article that he posted. Some people were definitely bashing him or saying that's narrow-minded. He wrote another article uh, months ago for Forbes as well, and it was defining Bitcoin in two camps. So if you like Bitcoin, there's two ways to look at it. There's monetary maximalism. That means that you like Bitcoin, the asset, the, the, you know, the number go up. You know, when you hold Bitcoin yourself, the, the monetary aspect of Bitcoin, the sats in your wallet, whatever, whatever you use. And then he defined the platform maximalism. Platform maximalism is someone that likes Bitcoin. You know, obviously, they do like the number go up technology and all of that. But they think that Bitcoin should be bend and changed and used uh, to further human advancement. But at, I don't want to say at the cost of changing the protocol, but at the cost of updating and upgrading. And like, I guess th this camp gets, I don't want to say in trouble, but a lot of the monetary people do not believe in, in the platform maximalism way of updating or changing it or adding features just for the sake of adding features, making it quote unquote faster or better or more robust. We saw a lot of this very recently with the BIP19 uh, crew. They were trying to add covenants to Bitcoin and we, we don't need to get into the specifics of that. But um, it's a very different camp. Like they, they like Bitcoin. They think it's the most dominant one. But uh, I'd say they're more open to adding or to upgrading or changing Bitcoin, where the monetary people believe that Bitcoin's fine in the way that it is. Yes, there will be hurdles and, and things that we need to do over time, but they take a much slower approach and they're like, they say Bitcoin's more perfect in the way that it is. Um, I, I hope that makes sense and we, we can talk on that article and or the one that uh, Pete just wrote. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it always comes back to like this idea of decentralization and censorship resistance and kind of integrity assurance of the decentral decentralized ledger. And, um, you know, for me, at least Bitcoin, you know, you look around at the macro environment and we are seeing increasingly uh, currency devaluations, especially in, in emerging markets. And I think, you know, some of this innovation that's occurring, um, you know, quote unquote innovation that's occurring in these other cryptocurrencies. I, I just don't think they're that important um, when you look at the broader macro picture. What's important is is having a sound money right now and having a way to preserve your savings. And I think Bitcoin's properties allow it to do that. And I just don't think any of these other cryptocurrencies have those properties. And so when I look at the problems facing the broader uh, you know, world, um, these people need a money that can preserve their savings. And so for me, that, that, that's Bitcoin. And so that's why I spent all my time on it. And it comes back to the security assurances and the decentralization and the censorship resistance. And that's where I think, you know, maximalism, um, it's because it's the only one that has those. And it's the only one that like has um, solutions to these very, very real problems that are facing specifically emerging markets. Um, so that's kind of how I took it. Sam, I was wondering, you know, people often use the word scam to like define altcoin projects and like kind of bundle all those things together. What like, do you think that's a mis like characterization of them or do you think everything is a scam? Like how do you define scam? Like what, what is that to you? 
Um, I, you know, I'm hesitant to call like, everything a scam. Um, I, I consider things scams when there's, they're not honest with their marketing and they're not honest about the trade-offs uh, between Bitcoin and their, their project. If, if, an, if an altcoin came out and said like, hey, we're, we're centralized and um, you know, we're not trying to be money, um, we're not trying to compete with Bitcoin, uh, we're trying to do something entirely else and you know, we're trying to whatever problem they're trying to solve, you know, that's go for it, like go for it. But if you slander Bitcoin uh, to justify your, your project or you're disingenuous about um, your project, like a perfect example of this is you know, Solana really grinds my gears because if you go on Solana's website till this day, right in bold letters is we are a decentralized platform. And then if you knew the history of Solana, you know, it's, it's turned off and on unilaterally like eight times this year. And by definition, that's not decentralized. So I get really, um, you know, scam gets thrown out. It kind of like bastardized the word. Um, but to me, that's kind of what separates it. Like if you're basically having false advertising that you are something that you're not, that to me is a scam. Um, and that's just kind of how I personally see it. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna take a crack at that question too. And Sam, I, I I pretty much agree with you. I think we need to define scam and like things can be bad and not be a scam, right? Like you can critique stuff, stuff can be bad for users, bad for the market, and they're not a scam, right? So I, in, in my world, scam is like literally the people running the project are just trying to like steal money they have a hostile intention they're just trying to defraud people and like that is you know when i use the word scam or when i think of the word scam like that's what i'm thinking of um and so some some coins are absolutely that like there's plenty of them those exist uh you know in a in a, in a pretty substantial number and then you have this other sort of project that whether or not the conclusions are accurate whether or not the founders are correct or you know whatever um, we can say that they essentially are, um, at least they believe what they're doing, right? Like they believe they're, you know, doing something that has a reasonable chance of succeeding, that'd be good for the world. And I don't, I don't think those projects or those people should be called scams, right? I think that deserves a different level of engagement. I think that those sort of actors deserve, uh, you know, more of a rebuttal, more of a critique. Um, and I, I agree with like with Sam. It's about the marketing, and this is this is where we we get into something that can cross that line. It's it's where there's deceptive marketing, where they're where they hide risk, where they essentially say, "Oh, there's no risk here. It's a safe twenty percent yield. It's an eight percent yield. There's no there's no risk. This is acceptable. This is like a bank. This is the new bank, right?" Those are all like deceptive, like that is that is highly deceptive marketing. And I think that's that's one way you also cross that line. Um, but I think for like theor like thought experiment, somebody decides to build some sort of like DeFi project and there's like, hey, this is centralized. We control the keys. This is high risk. The token doesn't have any value. It's just like a speculation on future value. There's potential securities risks here. This is what you're getting at. And like, if you still want to participate in this and see if like there's a chance this gets built into something meaningful, despite knowing all those risks, then I think that's at least honest. 
Um, and at that point, it comes down to, well, hey, can that actually work? Are there protocol level issues? Are there incentive issues? And you can engage on that level. But I think, I think it's probably good to use scams specifically to mean people that are like outright trying to steal money from people. If I could uh, just uh, maybe share a thought, like I, I view banks as a scam just personally because they have marketing, marketed themselves my entire life as a safe place to hold your wealth. But as a Canadian who is watching, you know, all that was going on with the Freedom Convoy and freezing of bank accounts of anybody who was donating 50 or or $100 to a peaceful protest and had their corporate personal uh, bank accounts frozen and couldn't even make mortgage payments, let alone um, buy groceries or diabetic supplies um, from a pharmacy, the banking system is a, is a scam because it is the least safe place to hold your precious purchasing power. Um, and many people may laugh at that, but, um, you know, it hits very close to home for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, um, for sure. Um, now, that's actually part of the reason why I was really critical of, of Coinbase and these other exchanges. It, it was their... It was their marketing that I find uh, repulsive uh, because if you go on their blog, if you go on their educational resources, um, it's it's very skewed towards these other protocols. And their messaging is that it, it, basically there's not as much risk here than there actually is. And you're seeing Coinbase kind of pivot a little bit. They put out some like blog posts saying like, hey, we'll be more honest about the trade-offs. We'll... To, to protect these consumers. And I guess that's a good thing to see, um, but it doesn't uh, erase uh, the last, you know, five years of, of what I would call disingenuous marketing of these other cryptocurrencies and not being honest about the trade-offs and the risks. And um, I think it's a, I think it's a big problem. And I, and I hope that these projects and, and the exchanges that list them, start to be more honest about that because um, a lot of people come to, to this industry and they just see them all as like the same thing. Right. And, and we know uh, up on stage here that if Bitcoin is very, very different than these cryptocurrencies and different assurances and um, you know, listing scams is one thing, but then marketing them as something they're not is a whole nother thing. And, um, that's that's where my critiques of those exchanges really come from. Yeah, yeah I, you you go ahead, Stephen. Oh yeah, just a quick yeah. I mean, I really agree with that, Sam. Like, uh, I think that's part of why there's just so much animosity. There's such a strong divide. It's just this long history of like actual scams like deceptive marketing projects like essentially trashing you know like ripple fudding proof of work like like really hostile shit and like that's just there's no excuse for that like it's just 
uh, irredeemable. Um, and like, I can, I can conceptualize of an alternate reality where like none of that happened. And like the marketing was authentic and it was just like, Hey, this is super high risk, early stage VC investment. And, you know, I wonder if things would be different, like, you know, and of course human incentives are what get in the way there, right? The reason that reality doesn't exist is because of incentives and it's easier to, you know, do some of these things and just make money. But I can I can I can theorize of an alternate reality where like this divide isn't so harsh. Like there's still going to be technical disagreement. There's still going to be arguments. There's still going to be all that stuff. But like you know, I don't. Yeah, no real comment behind that. But I could just imagine a world where like these same things were conducted more honestly, and I think it I think it would have been better. Do, do you guys see that, um, you know, this this cycle kind of clearing some of that out? Or do you think we're about to see just a whole other wave of new uh, projects come on board? Like, you know, every cycle seems to have just a new wave of cryptocurrencies and everyone forgets about the altcoins of the past cycles. Um, like they can't even name them unless you've been here for a while. And, and I'm wondering if you guys think that that's going to change after this whole washout or if we're about to see just another wave. I think if, if the regulators, I think they've been served up their opportunity on a golden platter. They had a lender that totally blew up. They had the largest hedge fund with blew up and they had a highly prominent token project that blew up. If they don't seize on that opportunity, I, 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 I almost come to think they never will. So, I mean, I think we are looking at some sort of regulatory crackdown, and then we'll see what happens on the other side of that. Sir, for Jamie, you got your hand up. What's up? Hey, thanks, Sam. Um, you can ignore all the DMs I've been sending you because I think you might might not have seen me. Something might have happened. As soon as I logged off and back on uh, and put and requested to speak, I, you, you saw it right away. So I've been listening for an hour wanting to chime in on this conversation. Um, so um, I have this very broad take on this thing. Much of what I'm going to say has been touched on in, in different ways, and I don't mean to repeat what someone else has said. But unfortunately, um, this thing called Bitcoin was given to the world to replace fiat money, as all of us know. And if, if we assume that that's the end goal, then every single business, government regulation, OG Bitcoiner that puts any money into anything that would slow the adoption of Bitcoin, including not being truthful about the difference between Bitcoin and everything else, is slowing the adoption of Bitcoin. So um, I'm, I'm against all regulations uh, because I'm against government, because they're just other people who get to control our lives. And much of them weren't even voted into anything. And, and we're stuck having to jump through hoops because they write magic words on paper that force everybody to act in certain ways. Now, that's not to say that, um, you know, people shouldn't be protected in, in certain ways, but asking the government to come in and do it is, is not, in my opinion, the, the right approach. I think the free market should do it. And the free market needs to do it by going out of its way, that's us, to explain the difference. Bitcoin is a money that can help people. It, should, it needs to be adopted by everybody for it to be that money. And every single thing that allows Bitcoin to be considered an investment so some guy could make more wealth on the way to this 
overall adoption is slowing it down. It's stopping that narrative from being perpetuated really strong, really loud, and really far because most people don't see it as a monetary system that levels the playing field for everybody on the planet. We're talking about peace on Earth, humanity being fair and equal, parasites not being able to extort wealth from us. And all these players, every single one of them, guys like Simon Dixon, who took his Bitcoin wealth and invested it into all these companies that are suppressing that narrative. Essentially, they, they talk about how great Bitcoin is, and then in the next breath, they want you to look at something else, which slows the adoption. All this, you know, to the moon that we all hope for, keep waiting, folks. As long as every single business out there that keeps doing this bullshit uh, that keeps associating all these other things with Bitcoin instead of completely separating them as completely different things. We're, we're going to be here for a long time. And the amount of scams that will keep coming, they're, they're just going to keep coming for years because this narrative has to permeate everybody's mind that you want to own as many units of this system trading in and out because you think you're so smart. Some people will do great and they could end up with more Bitcoin. Most people never will. And so it's just the purest narrative. Get as many units in this system as you possibly can until the day you need to use them. Start working for them. Get a fiat job. Mine for them. Whatever it takes, just get them. Don't trade them. Don't leverage them. Don't, you know, don't promote anything that would have any uh, competition to Bitcoin. Every exchange that has anything other than Bitcoin, they're, they're slowing the adoption. Everything. Everything. It's one narrative. It's the future money of the world. The faster we get there, the faster everybody's lives improve. And all this shit is just bells and whistles, sidetrack bullshit all day long. Thank you very much for that opportunity. And I just want to, I want to, I want to chime in and say, I actually also agree with that viewpoint. Like, I, I think there is kind of, uh, I think both what I was saying earlier and that can be true. And I think the, the, the first viewpoint is about the precision of language. It's about using words specifically to not open up uh, arguments from Bitcoiners to obvious critiques, right? I think we should be precise with language because if we call something, hey, this is a that or this is a this, and it's very easily refutable under like the common semantic definition of that word, then like that opens us up to like critique. And I actually, I actually hundred percent agree with Surfer Jim. I think we, you know, advancing the adoption of Bitcoin as fast as possible is a tremendous good for the world. And because that's a tremendous good, anything that slows that down should obviously be avoided. And I think I do agree that like distractions and a lot of kind of investment and money and talent going into a lot of this other stuff does slow it down. So I think, um, I agree with that, and I think that is a should be a primary goal for Bitcoiners. I actually think us using imprecise language is bad for Bitcoin. I think it opens us up to more attack vectors than we would otherwise be exposed to. Serpent Jim, you brought up a good point of like self-regulation, right, of the industry. And um, it's kind of frustrating when these critics don't seem to separate Bitcoiners and the rest of the crypto ecosystem. And they'll say things um, that Bitcoiners are basically saying for years, like warning people, and they act like we weren't doing that, they, or maybe they're just ignorant of that fact. Um, and my question is, you know, this idea of self-regulating, 
it seems like we're kind of put at a really high standard as an industry to self-regulate. And I don't know if that exists as much in the traditional financial markets. Like how much self-regulation is going on in the traditional financial markets? Like you don't really hear about those people warning everyone of scams. But for some reason, these regulators expect our industry to really be on top of it. And I feel like we have been like from the, you know, just warning everybody about this stuff. A lot of the critique, the best critiques of crypto come from Bitcoiners. Um, but I don't really see that same level of standard being applied to the traditional financial markets. So I don't know. Well, there's a whole there's a, there's a definite reason for that. And that's because in the traditional market, there is nothing you're going to um, buy and hold for the rest of your life that will, by doing so and convincing everybody else to do so, is going to change humanity and improve the planet for everybody. But a new type of money could do that. And that's why this is completely different. It's I say to people all the time, Bitcoin is on one side of a technological wall. This is not ideological. It's technological. Every other one of these quote-unquote cryptocurrencies will never be on the other side of that wall. They can never get on the other side. They will always compete with Bitcoin with one hand tied behind their back, trying to copy it and make believe that it's somehow similar. Bitcoin is the most important invention in all of human history because when humans came up with the construct of money, we were able to separate out labor and specialize in things. And all of our progress, most of our progress as hum in humanity, has come after the thing called money was introduced into the world and allowed people to take their work and move it into the future, both you know physically and over time, uh, or move it forward, you know, take it with them instead, you know, instead of it just going to waste. And so. When you have this new thing called money that improves everybody on the planet, um, that's a really important invention. And then some people came along and found a way to corrupt it and use it for their own advantage. And so the, the, the concept of money, the tool of money, has been broken for hundreds of years now at one level or another. And uh, enough people got pissed off about this and figured out a way using the digital age to create a thing that can act as money. And, and essentially what we have is a protocol, a digital protocol that's run online over thousands of computers that just agree with each other every day on the state of this network, which essentially is a network that creates and tracks digital files. That's all it is. It's just a network of information. And it's constantly being updated. And everybody on the planet constantly syncs with everybody else. It's really amazing. And humans have figured out, you know, this thing can be used as money but we got to convince people that they can use it and that it's not hard and all these other things that go with you know using money but here it is we have it and the narrative is that narrative is just being squashed by investments and crypto tokens and leverage DeFi bullshit all day long nfts all this stupid crap I don't care that people do any of it. Honestly, I believe in a free market. It's just whoever said it before, it's the narrative. People are not separating the two. The narrative of hard money, fair for everybody on the world, many, 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 many people don't want that to be known. All the ones that are entrenched in the existing system, it's obvious to see. They don't want that to be known. That's why it's up to us. The hardcore Bitcoin toxic maximalists. We're not toxic because we don't, we don't like people. We're not toxic because we want to squash innovation in the world. We're toxic because they're fucking lying all day long. They're just lying about what Bitcoin is and what this other shit is relative to Bitcoin. Uh, like, th that's it. It's as simple as that. 
You can own Bitcoin and get wealthy personally. But if you help this network grow, you help all of humanity while you get while you help yourself at the same time. The incentives are so damn aligned. It blows my mind every time I think about it. And I just can't contain myself. This bullshit going on all day long. is just that bullshit. And we got to just the, the narrative has to be strong. This is the world's future money. Get as much of it as you can. Un, unseat these assholes that are controlling us. Get Take the power of the money away from them. They take the then the power over your life goes away. It's in your own self-interest to make sure this thing gets adopted as money. There is no better alternative right now. Preach. Um, last day, he's got your hand up for a while. I'm sorry. Yeah, hi. I just wanted to um, sort of carry on from what Surfer Jim is just saying. I was in a spaces this morning before Cafe Bitcoin. Uh, where they were talking about uh, Bitcoin uh, maximalists and toxicity. Um, and it, it turned out that it was a, a space that was around Sovereign, which I guess is a sort of BlockFi type uh, institution. I didn't know. Um, I'd heard about Sovereign, but I, I couldn't remember what, what the hell it was. And so I did some research after I uh, got off the stage about it, but basically they were sort of shitting on Bitcoin um, and saying that the future of um, for the world and adoption was around tokens and uh, DeFi. And uh, then I brought up the fact of um, about these um, stable coins uh, at what at some point being regulated by the uh, by the US government and what's going to happen to the likes of tether or uh, USDC or any of the other ones uh, and then they also brought up about uh, Dow uh, about DAOs as well and uh, for me as I said to them anytime I hear the word Dow or community I turn it run the other way because for me Bitcoin is, a store of my time and wealth and it's it's a personal thing for me and what it means to me is something completely different than what it means to somebody on the other side of the world um and so i yeah i whenever i hear the word dao or community um then i i tend to run the other way but i just i i had money in uh block buy and i uh previously and thankfully i got my daughter and my sister's money out of there and i I, I just sort of, I guess I'm just sort of reinstating what Surfer Jim said, which is, um, and, and in fact, they kicked me off the stage because I mentioned to them that I, I didn't know, and this is what I said, I, I didn't know that this was going to be a uh, advertisement or promotion for, uh, for their application called Sovereign, which I then looked up on uh, TradingView and it got up as high as like 40 something bucks last year in October, and now it's trading at 50 cents. So I think that says a lot about uh, that uh, that bank. Yeah, I don't know much about Sovereign, but I do agree with, uh, you know, whenever they are touting their community as, like, the, the main purpose of their, their project, um, I immediately have red flags go off. And it actually like really differentiates Bitcoin because 
the Bitcoin community, I mean, very disagreeable. It brings people from all walks of life and we disagree with each other. And I always joke like the Bitcoin community, like half of us hate each other, it seems like, because we're just really here for the mission and to debate ideas. And, um, you know, our community is a lot different than, say, some of these coins where it seems like everyone's friends and it's all about just kind of getting together and and that's usually not a good sign when like you hear Celsius now all the time like oh community community community, and really that's that should be a red flag um, for anybody that touts the purpose of their project is is about our amazing community. Uh, if you've been around for a while, that should make you run away. So I totally agree with that. Um, we're reaching the end of the show. Uh, we got a couple more minutes. Um, wanted to toss it over. Uh, to Chris over at Bitcoin Mag, if, if there's anything that you had to say. Yeah, no, uh, we've got Bitcoin Magazine live today at 1 p.m. Eastern or 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we will be doing um, news and notes with P and myself, and then we will be doing an interview with JP Barrick of the Mining Store to talk about his operation and him with mining. Uh, and then at 3 p.m. Eastern, it looks like we'll, this actually just came in. We're trying to have Pete Rizzo and Paul Stork talk about uh, Pete Rizzo's article uh, that we just brought up earlier in this conversation about uh, Bitcoin maximalism being dead and defense of Bitcoin maximalism. So that should be uh, a very interesting Twitter spaces at 3 p.m. Eastern. So right after Bitcoin Magazine Live, that'll be at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. So thanks, Sam. Back to you. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a good one. And I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to tune into that. Um, well, great, guys. You know, uh, this is Cafe Bitcoin. This is the place for morning news and preferred hangout for Bitcoiners every morning. Um, check out the podcast recording. I want to thank Swan Bitcoin and, and the Bitcoin Magazine, who are sponsors. And um, the crew, Aunt Shane, Sass for Life, producer Jacob over there behind the Swan logo. Uh, thanks, my man. Does a lot of work behind the scenes. So um, everyone give J- J- producer Jacob a follow if you haven't. Um, want to thank all the amazing speakers who contributed to this convo today. And, um, you know, I think we're all just in the bear market. This is where you stack stats and, and where you learn um, of the dangers of leverage and all of these problems that uh, Bitcoiners kind of warn people about. Uh, you know, the market sometimes is the best uh, teacher. And um, I think bear markets are for learning, for opening up books, closing up those price apps, and then stacking sats at bargain prices. And so this is an investment advice, but uh, you know that is where historically it's been the best time to stack sats. So keep your head down, keep learning, and um, appreciate all you guys who tuned in today. And um, have a great day. I'll be uh, hosting tomorrow. Uh, Alex is out again, so I'll be uh, tomorrow morning doing the same thing uh, until he gets back. But um, you know, appreciate everyone here. Just uh, go crush it today.